0: we must give up our own schemes and our own manipulations to solve our problems and we must determine instead to do things god's way as written in his word and entrust our future to him
1: welcome to the word unleashed with tom pennington Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does it mean to hit rock bottom? Where do you turn when you've exhausted all your options? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 14 of his current series, Ruth. Tom will examine today a crystal-clear implication found in the first five verses of Ruth, chapter 3, Trust God's plan you'll be reminded that trusting God's plan means that you must give up your own schemes to solve your problems and instead do things God's way as written in His Word. It's this type of surrender to God that Naomi demonstrates in the text we'll be looking at today. The question is, have you done that? Have you surrendered ultimate control from your ways to His Keep all that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on the Word Unleashed.
0: Here is a poor widow who's planning to spend the night in the open field. She will need her outer cloak as a blanket to keep warm. Of course, it would also help disguise her, from, keep her from being recognized. So that's possible. It's also possible when we read the word clothes here, and this is a, a very popular interpretation by commentators, that Naomi meant for Ruth to stop wearing the clothes that were associated with her mourning over the death of her husband. In other words, Naomi's saying, okay, I want you to bathe yourself, I want you to anoint yourself with perfume, and I want, to put, I want you to put your regular clothes back on. I want you to end the period of your mourning this is possible. It, again, is very similar to another Old Testament portion, and that is in 1 Samuel, chap- or, excuse me, 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 20, where you remember after the, the death of David's son, we read this. David arose from the ground. This is after he hears about the death of his son. Before this, he was mourning, he'd torn his clothes, he was fasting. When he hears that his son had died... And he realizes that's God's purpose. It says, David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. As a result of his doing this, the people around David understood that he had stopped mourning for his son. It's possible that that's exactly what Naomi is, is encouraging Ruth to do. Ruth, it's time to stop mourning over Malon. It's time for you to move on. So I want you to wash yourself. I want you to anoint yourself with perfume. And I want you to put your normal clothes back on. Now, Naomi's directions for Ruth continue in verse 3. And go down to the threshing floor. That's interesting. Go down to the threshing floor. You know, ancient cities were usually built on the highest geographical points for defensive reasons. So when you left the city, you always went down. And she says, once you arrive at the threshing floor, do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Ruth was to stay out of sight until Boaz had finished the evening meal, and had lain down for the night. After a hard day's work, a long hard day's work, a good meal, a little wine, he would be relaxed and he'd quickly go to sleep. Ruth is to stay hidden, but notice verse 4. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Now that seems really strange to us. What exactly is Naomi suggesting that Ruth do here? Sadly, there are some who have concluded wrongly that Naomi is actually suggesting that Ruth sexually seduce Boaz. I mean, after all, it is the time of the judges, And it was not uncommon for prostitutes to show up at the threshing floor to solicit sinful sexual behavior from the workers. But there's absolutely no hint in this passage of anything like that. In fact, everything in this book cries out against that interpretation. Chapter 2, verse 1, says that Boaz was a man of noble character. After Ruth shows up, On that night, look at his response in chapter 3, verse 10. He asked Yahweh to bless Ruth for her action that night. We're also about to be told in chapter 3, verse 11, that Ruth is a woman of excellence and virtue. In addition to that, even though nothing sinful happens, Boaz is still going to insist that Ruth leave before daylight so that she will in no way taint her own reputation or his. So that's not what's going on here. This is not a suggestion that she sexually seduced Boaz and in so doing encourage him to marry her. So what exactly is Naomi suggesting that Ruth do in this verse? Well, the Hebrew word translated feet, where it says uncover his feet, that word occurs in only one other place outside of this passage. And it's in Daniel 10, verse 6. And there it refers to the lower limbs, including the feet, the legs, and the thighs. So Naomi tells Ruth to uncover Boaz's lower limbs and then to lie down nearby. Apparently, this was a custom that Boaz would recognize. We don't know how common it was or how often it was practiced, but the bottom line here, and we're going to see it, is that Naomi was instructing Ruth in this way, through this custom, to actually propose to Boaz. Look down in verse 9 of chapter 3. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. And here's this expression that we just saw in Ezekiel. Spread your covering over your maid. Marry me, is how that translated, translates in modern English. Marry me, for you are my kinsman, Redeemer. What? Naomi is telling Ruth to do is through an ancient custom that was practiced at least in some places and sometimes to propose marriage to Boaz. Oh, and by the way, she expected that it would be clear to Boaz because notice verse 4, then he will tell you what you shall do. That's all you need to do and he'll take it from there. He'll get it. He'll know what you're about. Naomi said, once you've done these things, just wait for his instruction. By the way, this statement not only shows Naomi's confidence in the integrity of Boaz, I love this, but it also reveals her newfound confidence in God's providence. God will work this out. Now, here is a woman who has come from doubt that caused her with her husband to leave the land and move to idolatrous Moab, and now she's willing to entrust her future and the the future of her daughter-in-law to God. She now believes that God can even direct the responses of a man when he wakes from sleep. And my wife would tell you that's almost a miracle. Verse 5. She said to her, this is Ruth to Naomi, all that you say, I will do. Don't misunderstand here. Ruth's response isn't merely faith in Naomi. I mean, after all, let's just be honest. This seems like a radical plan. Instead, Ruth has clearly come to have a deep confidence in Yahweh as well. Now, I want to stop there tonight because this passage has some important lessons for us. I want to point out some, some implications of this text. And I, I want you to bear with me, okay, because I want to start with some applications, listen carefully, that are not the main point of these verses. But they are important lessons that are legitimately gleaned from these verses. But stay tuned. We'll finish our time by looking at the primary application of this passage. The primary authorial intent of this passage. So stay with me. Don't doubt that I'm going to get there. But these are legitimate implications we can draw. Number one, don't interpret narrative portions of Scripture as normative. In other words... We should never assume that simply because a biblical character does something that it is right or if it is right that we should imitate it. This is very confusing to many Christians. They come to their Bibles and they read a narrative portion of Scripture, a story in Scripture. And the the key person in the story does something and they immediately think, well, I should do that. The classic example, please don't do this, is Gideon's fleece. Do not put out a fleece to determine the will of God. Remember in that story, God gets angry with Gideon for his lack of faith? In addition, it's not normative. It, because it happens doesn't mean you should do it. Related to this one, and the reason I wanted to lay that one out is, and again, stay with me, don't try to build an approach to dating, courtship, and marriage on a biblical model. I want to make this point here. I wanted to make it at some point in the flow of Ruth. Because there are several ideas that have surfaced in recent years among Christians claiming to be biblical models for finding a spouse. But honestly, they are all built on an exegetical foundation of sand. Okay, you want a biblical model for finding a spouse? Let me give you some biblical approaches for finding a spouse. Number one, here you go. You ready? Got your pen ready? Those of you who are... Thinking about this, you, you, you um, parents. Number one, find an attractive prisoner of war, bring her home, shave her head, trim her nails, and give her new clothes. She's yours. Deuteronomy 21. It's a biblical model. Number two, find a man with seven daughters and impress him by watering his flock. This is Moses in Exodus 2. Number three, go to a party and hide. When the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. This is the Benjamites in Judges 21. Number four, have God create a wife for you while you sleep. But note, this will cost you a rib. Genesis 2. Number five, Agree to work seven years in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage. Get tricked into marrying the wrong woman, then work for another seven years for the woman you wanted to marry in the first place. That's right, 14 years of hard labor for a wife. This is Jacob in Genesis 29. Here's one you will not want to try on your own. Don't try this at home. Number six, cut off 200 foreskins of your future father-in-law's enemies and get his daughter for a wife. This is David in 1 Samuel 18. Number seven, become the emperor of a nation and hold a beauty contest. Ahasuerus in Esther chapter 2 Number eight, when you see someone you like, go home and tell your parents, I have seen a woman, get her for me. <laughs> if your parents question your decision, simply say, She's the one for me. This is Samson in, in Judges 14. Number nine, purchase a piece of property and along with the property, get a wife as part of the deal. This is Boaz in Ruth chapter 4. Listen, if you want a biblical model, choose one of those. Now, obviously, I I say that tongue-in-cheek. I want you to see, though, that there are no distinctly biblical models for choosing a spouse. You cannot use narrative as normative. But the most common methods among Christians today are dating and courtship. I understand that. I've read a lot about both of these. Let me make it clear to you that neither of those models is forbidden in Scripture. Let me also say to you that neither of those models is commanded in Scripture. To put it another way, both of them are biblically acceptable. And if in the future another model comes along, as long as it doesn't contradict what the Scripture teaches, it will be acceptable as well. In the end, this is not a clear biblical issue. Don't make it one. Every moral decision that we are faced with falls into one of three categories. It is either, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt, chapter and verse. Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not, chapter and verse. And everything else falls into the third category, which is issues of conscience. And we're told how to make those decisions in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. If you want to learn more about issues of conscience and how to make those decisions... Tune in online to the four messages I did on Romans 14 a number of years ago now on issues of conscience. I think I call it hard call. So understand that you shouldn't make this a biblical issue. Make up your own mind before the Lord. If you're in your parents' home, you're responsible to them, they pay your bills, then you need to go by their conscience. But don't judge others if they choose to do this differently. It's very important. You say, well, what about you, Tom? What about you and Sheila? Well, it doesn't really matter. This is an issue of conscience. But I will tell you, my advice is don't practice practice recreational dating, but intentional dating. By recreational dating, I mean the kind of dating in which marriage is not in view at all. This is the kind of dating that typically takes place in the early teen years but that some people seem never to grow out of. It's dating that's just about hanging out with somebody you like, having fun, and unfortunately often making out and other physical involvement. That kind of dating is contrary to the Scripture because it places you and the other person in serious temptation. So don't date recreationally. Instead, date intentionally. Adult, that is non-recreational dating, when you're old enough to think about marriage, is intentionally pursuing a person to get to know them better, either as a better friend or as a potential spouse. But let me say, for those of you, because I know this is an issue in our church as it is across the country with Christian teenagers and Christian young people, don't take dating so seriously either. A couple of dates do not equal a marriage proposal. Don't think of it that way yourself. Don't think about it with others who date. It's okay to have several dates and then graciously stop dating when one or both concludes that they can be friends, but they don't have a desire to pursue a deeper relationship that may head toward marriage. I I hate to admit this to you, but I did a lot of intentional dating in college, like one or two girls every week, different ones, because I wanted to know these people, and I wanted them to know me, and In God's providence, he brought, through that process, Sheila and me together. So, don't try to build an approach to dating, courtship, and marriage on a biblical model. It's an issue of conscience. Make a decision what you want to do before the Lord or, as parents, what you're going to have your children do. But then don't judge others by the standard you set. But, as I told you before, the major application of this scene, of this act in Ruth, is not about dating and courtship. Rather, it's about how two women boldly decided to take God at His word. And like them, and here's the real implication of this passage we've just looked at, is we must abandon our own ideas and follow God's ways. Now, admittedly, Naomi's plan and the way she has suggested that it unfold are radical, and they have the potential for creating a disaster But where would Naomi come up with such a plan? Now, I understand her specific strategy of wash yourself and and put on your clothes and go down and uncover his feet, all of that was based on her own wisdom, her knowledge of the circumstances of the time, the cultural customs. But the basic idea behind Naomi's plan was an effort to follow the plan that Scripture taught. You see, there was a custom sanctioned by God in the Mosaic law, a custom called leveret marriage. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25. And notice verse 5. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son... "...the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel." And then there's a stipulation for how to handle it. If if he refuses to do this, he's publicly shamed. But what I want you to see is that this was the method God put in place to care for a widow without a child. And this is exactly what Naomi is recommending to Ruth. Ruth. The fact that Naomi stakes her future and Ruth's future on an obscure plan laid out in the Scripture for circumstances just like theirs is such a powerful lesson for us all. I want you to think for a moment about what we've learned so far about how Naomi had tried to solve her problems in the past. She and Elimelech tried to provide for their family through the unbiblical plan of moving to Moab. And then after her husband and sons died, she decides to return to Israel. And what was her plan for caring for Ruth? Go back and marry an idolater. Bad plans. But this time, Naomi, repentant Naomi, Naomi living in the land, Naomi desiring to honor God, Determined to seek security for Ruth and for herself, God's way. Folks, the main lesson of this plan laid out in the first five verses of chapter three, its implication for us is crystal clear. We must give up our own schemes and our own manipulations to solve our problems and we must determine instead to do things God's way as written in His Word and entrust our future to Him. That's what Naomi is doing in those five verses. She understood the kinsman redeemer. She understood the goel. She understood that this was God's way to provide for them. And what she is suggesting here is exactly that. I'm tired, she says, of making my own plans and my own schemes and solving my own problems. I'm going to rely on what God has said in His Word. Let me encourage you. There has to come a point in every life when we come to that place. When we say I am sick of trying to work myself out of my problems, it's time that I listen to my creator and that I did things his way and entrust my future to him. Let me ask you tonight, have you ever truly come to that place? Or do you listen to all the advice around you? All of the people who want to tell you what you ought to do. The world that has something to say. What's going on right now? What's popular? Or do you tune your ear to God's way as revealed in His Word? That's what Naomi models for us. She's done with her schemes. She's going to pursue the way God has laid out in His Word. May God help us to do the same. Let's pray together.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was Part 14 of Ruth. Tom will have Part 15 for us next time. And we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one word And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team... I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.